I greet you this day in the name of Christ Jesus, our King, our Savior. I want us to think for a minute, you probably know about this series of books um, called the Left Behind series. So Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins sold some 80 million copies in 16 books about this idea of the rapture. Um, I haven't read the books. They came out in the 90s and early 2000s, but it's um, pretty easy to get the general sense of these books, this idea that Christ comes and raptures his church out of the world into the sky for some delay, you know, and then, um, then the Antichrist takes up government in this world. And I think the Left Behind series, at least at this level, gets it entirely backwards, this idea of the rapture. And I mention that simply because our passage today from the gospel in um, Matthew's 25th chapter is about the wedding feast and the wait for the return of the king and the bridegroom. And this delay, I want to set up for us a little bit because in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 25, this parable of the ten um, virgins, five wise and five foolish, is in the middle of a set of three that are all about this word parousia. That's the Greek in Matthew 24 that connect these three passages. The parousia is the return, the coming again of the Messiah. And so this is one of those central passages. The one just before it is a real classic text of that kind of left behind theology, that there will be two servants in a field. One will be taken away and one will be left. And then the presumption is, at least in the left behind, is that the Christian who's the one who's raptured away and the evil stays here, rather than that the kingdom comes to build a community here on earth. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute, but this is that central theme. That's what's going on in Matthew 24 and 25. It is parables and expectations of the return of the Messiah as Jesus speaks to these Pharisees and his disciples in his midst. And so I'll just walk through this passage and our passages today um, in putting them into three categories, challenges for us. Um, hours ago, the election in the U.S. was declared, at least early on. I think we know it's going to be a wait yet, and there'll be a process ahead. But I want to set that before us in our season of life in the midst of COVID with three challenges from our passage and for the weight of the king. Um, the first is the coming of the kingdom itself. What does that mean? The second is the long delay, the long delay of the bridegroom. And the third is the call to watch. So begin with the coming of the kingdom. Our Old Testament reading today, if you haven't read it or you hear it during the service, um, some explanation for you. It's from a book called Wisdom or the Wisdom of Solomon. And it's among these books in our Bibles, um, probably not in most of yours, these books called the Apocrypha. And so they're a collection of books from the Latin and from the Greek Septuagint that have been added to some Bibles. They're in Catholic Bibles. Uh, some, and there is a version of them in Orthodox Bibles. The Lutherans have them, but no other Protestants really put them in the Bibles. And Anglicans, which I am, um, are in this odd category of people that in, in many English Bibles, we put them right between the Old and the New Testaments. But in the 39 articles, the articles that describe the the, um, the Christian faith for Anglicans, they say these books are to be used and are good for piety and for the building up, but not for doctrine. And there was a, a value known by the church for reading these books and attending to them. They'd been used for all of the church's history until the 16th century, and so the Anglicans didn't dismiss them. And here's the really important part as it comes to Jesus, is that this book, The Wisdom of Solomon, and ones like Baruch or um, Sirach, 
uh, the Wisdom or um, the, uh, Ben Sira is its other title. These books would have been uh, kind of on the order in Jesus' day of the Left Behind series. They were well known. We're certain, uh, virtually certain, that Paul in the book of Hebrews and passages make use of these passages. And it's almost certain in Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount is alluding to them at various points, including here in Matthew 25. So I've included that reading from Wisdom chapter 6 so that we'll grasp the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. So think in the parable what Jesus says. There's a return of the bridegroom and he's called these, bride, these, um, these virgins and they've come, five wise virgins and five foolish ones. And the wise ones have come with their lamps trimmed but also with extra oil for the long wait. And it turns out that the bridegroom is delayed and so only the wise ones have the oil for the long wait. Now the parable is about the coming of the kingdom and we see that if we read this passage in Wisdom chapter 6. In, in this section of wisdom, it's very much like Proverbs 8. She's giving a speech to kings who are expecting a kingdom. And the woman wisdom, who's the speaker in this passage, is saying, look, kings, when she comes, she doesn't come to you. This is the judgment against Israel because of their injustice, because the, the foolish and wicked rulers of Israel have oppressed the wise and the righteous. And so the Pharisees would have heard this passage and know that Jesus is talking about woman wisdom, the theme of wisdom and folly. And who is it that really sees and expects the kingdom and will meet it when it comes? And it's not the foolish ones. They've looked for the wrong kingdom. I put that out as a challenge for us today in this season, this election that's just happened in our country. Some very glad, some very sad, no doubt. But that's the question. Which kingdom are you waiting for? Because that divides these two sets of virgins at the feast. That's Jesus' point. Some were looking for the wrong kingdom. And his audience would have known that. They would have been the fools. And Jesus has just got through critiquing the Pharisees for the way they set up an empire that made vulnerable and weak the oppressed. And that did not keep the righteous ways of God. So what kingdom is your heart set on? I suspect that many Christians have this kind of, we could kind of voice this idea, well, I'm really waiting for the kingdom of God, but my heart is deeply set on the institutions and the elections and the status of life in my midst. And that's the challenge, I think, of this feast. Where's your heart set? You see, that's the power of this parable with this, the five wise virgins and the five foolish. They're all looking for the king. They're all expecting the kingdom, but some get it completely wrong and they set their heart on the wrong thing. That's the, the nature of the oil. It's just kind of symbolic of some were right at the end of the day about who the king is. And in this midst, Jesus is setting himself up as their king that they cannot see, for their hearts are set on the wrong kind of kingdom. So that's challenge number one. Is your heart set on the kingdom that will come and will make right this world and do away with those ones that cannot make it right and well? Challenge number one, the coming of the kingdom. Two, challenge number two, the long delay. The Lord will be away. That's the, um, the suspense in the parable is that they're all waiting. They all fall asleep even. 
through the night until he comes back. And if there's a place that the left-behind kind of theology, this dispensational idea, gets wrong, it's here. It's not that Jesus is about to come back at any minute. That's not his teaching at all. It's the exact opposite. It may be a very long time. It may be a very, very long time. And so those who are faithful, those who are watching for the king, must be prepared, must be patient, must be people willing and ready to serve the king in his long delay from coming to us. I've been reading this week and in recent weeks, our diocese and the Anglican Church in North America is talking about our use of technology and our use of worship during COVID and how we worship, how we still gather. And at the center of this discussion is our use of technology. And two scholars, I'll mention their name. You can ask me about them if you want to know. One is Shirley Turkle. She may be more familiar to you, a social scientist at MIT. And the other is Marianne Wolf, um, similar research. She's a neuroscientist at UCLA. And they're just the beginning of trying to compile data on what happens to our bodies and our minds in the use of technologies, particularly phones. What goes on, you know, when we're using these things? And the data is early, you know, we haven't had this world for all that long, but it is consistent. And here's some of their findings that are really significant. Those who use these things for hours a day, particularly young people, is an increased sense of isolation, an increased sense of anxiety and depression, and a decreased sense of empathy. Anxiety, isolation, loss of empathy. I mean, just a, a spiritual state shattered and kind of torn and frayed and weak. And imagine how this has just happened to us. We've got this culture that's growing into technology and we're shaping ourselves in a curtain on kind of way, a certain kind of way. And that merges with this long delay of COVID that robs us of so much of our normal rhythms in life. And then a delay in an election and the reports and the things we see in the news or we hear from student groups as I read online is a high tenor of anxiety of impatience, people kind of fraught. And is any surprise to us that we don't have the patience and the virtue of the long delay? So that's the second challenge. Which kingdom are you looking for? Are you prepared second for the long delay? And how do you practice and prepare yourself for that delay? You know, one big part of that's just gonna be our use of technology. It's going to be the way we discipline ourselves to sit in silence. Pascal, you know, he wrote his famous Penses, and he talks in there about divertisements. We're drawn to divertisements. And he was critiquing the royals, those who were wealthy, that they could move from one thing to another and never have to sit still with their thoughts. Whole cultures are developed about not being able to have to ever sit still. Never have digital or audio or sensory input. How long could you sit in silence? Could you sit for 10 minutes in sheer prayer without your mind running in a thousand directions? That's a good test of are you willing? Are you virtuous? Are you the kind of character who's ready for the long delay? So it's the coming of the kingdom, the long delay, and the call to watch. This is how Jesus ends the parable. Therefore, watch, 
and be ready, for you do not know when the Lord will come. The watch, to be watchful. This is probably a second place where the left behind gets it a little too literal. Not supposed to sit and stare at the sky. This is exactly what happens when Jesus ascends to the Father in Acts chapter 1, and then the angel comes to them and says, what are you doing looking at the sky? Get on with your work. You know, he'll come back in the way that he left, mysteriously. But get on, stop looking at the sky. The watch is not literal, in other words. The watch is the metaphor, and Jesus uses it several times. Paul and Peter and the writer to the Hebrews use this same term about a watch or a wait. And it's a, a metaphor for those people who are ready for the long delay. It's a kind of discipline. Uh, many years ago, uh, almost 30 years ago now, I was in survival training. I've probably told this story before, uh, but it's quite memorable. So in survival training, um, one of the things that they did for us is um, to deprive us of sleep. And so we would work and navigate through hills at night while being chased. And so you'd get you out of this sleep rhythm. And then they'd wake you up and give you tasks during the day when you're trying to rest. And as you get more and more sleep to fries and you're eating less and less, it is so very difficult to keep your eyes awake, your eyes open. Your body just pulled into that deep heaviness of sleep that you need and long for. That is the metaphor Jesus is giving us for the wait, for the delay of the king. Um, watchfulness is not a settled state. It's a state of labor, of watching, of discipline, of habits, of constant attention that has to be renewed and practiced by ourselves in community to be watchful. That's the kind of thing that will sustain the saints in the long wait. So this is really just building off of the second point. What practices do you have of watch and watchfulness and wakefulness? And we give us just three examples from where this term is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Peter and Paul both use it for being moral. So Peter says, um, be sober-minded, um, not impure, not given to lust and immorality and drunkenness. Uh, Paul uses it in Romans 13, be alert as in the day, not as in the night. Going about works of goodness, not those of, of wickedness and profanity and immorality and of greed and of strife. To be watchful, to be wakeful as we wait for the coming of the king is to be disciplined in love. To be practiced in virtues of simplicity, of temperance, of patience against anxiety. To be loving to a neighbor who differs from me politically. These are the practices Paul and Peter are getting at. Um, the book of Acts in chapter 21 and also in Hebrews, it says uh, there's, to the leaders of the church, be alert in keeping your ministry active. Keep your churches strong. It's a community kind of vision. To be alert, to be watchful, is to be a people constantly laboring as best we can to hold together the life of the church. To send out missionaries, to bless the poor and the needy in the community, to be watchful is to work as a people of God. And then famously, for Ephesians 16, uh, Ephesians 6, sorry, Paul uses this term alert twice, to be alert as Christian ethical people, um, active in the faith, but then to be alert always in prayer. Prayer. 
Your prayer is a place of stillness. We often reduce prayer to asking for things from God, like this transactional business model with God. But if you even think of the Lord's Prayer, the Psalms, so much of it's simply contemplating the Lord, His holiness, His goodness, the kingdom, and its contrast to anything we try and construct here. Much of prayer is silence, it's stillness. It's the opposite of anxiety. This is what I call us into now, in a season, fragile, a culture that is bent on anxiety, that's helpless, it's sad, I think, to watch. We have people who don't know how to sit still, don't know how to endure a long wait. The church ought to be the people in their midst. As one writer has called us, a non-anxious presence that the world can look and say, what is it that gives those people peace and joy in the midst of my anxiety? We ought to be those people. Advent's only a few weeks away, and if you remember year after year, that's the theme of Advent. Watch. It's a season where we practice waiting. And not simply just for Christmas presents and things we may um, you know, deprive ourselves of or give up. But we'll discipline ourselves in charity, in virtues, in love for one another. There ought to be some building up of that common sharing of the practice of waiting for the King. So that this, friends, because I promise you all the improvements or, or lack of improvements that happen from our government won't solve the aching anxiety and loneliness in the human heart. And that the church, by being people who know its kingdom, who know to watch for it, and know how to wait in its delay, may be in this world a light of non-anxious presence, hoping for our King. Amen.